Well, last Sunday we began our Lenten um, sermon series called Seven Events That Changed the World. And we're taking a look each week at one of the events that took place in those days before Jesus went to the cross and then his disciples found the empty tomb. Because each of those events have something to teach us, whether it is the betrayal or the prayer that we're going to look at today, or his arrest, or his trial, or his denial, or his crucifixion. There are lessons for us today. Those aren't just events that took place long ago. Now last week when I was talking about Judas, we were talking about betrayal, I really misspoke and I need to correct something that I said. I made the mistake last week of saying that Judas was the only disciple who addressed Jesus as rabbi. And a few of you who are really faithful Bible readers pointed out to me that that wasn't so. And you're absolutely right. And I knew that. The error was in my delivery. What I failed to say to you, what I was referring to was, um, and I just want to be clear about it because it makes a difference that you know that, yeah, I, I do read this thing, not just here on Sunday morning, but so that we're all clear. Jesus chastised folks for calling other people rabbi. And he said, you know, I am the one teacher. I am the rabbi. And many of his followers, many of the disciples and others called him rabbi. But on the night that he instituted the Last Supper, when he informed the disciples that one of them was going to betray him, each of the disciples responded to him saying, surely, Lord, it isn't me, except for Judas, who said, surely, rabbi, it isn't me. And the people who are way more scholarly than I am, who really have studied the Bible, take that as a signal in the gospel that at that point Judas had really separated himself from the community and didn't address Jesus as Lord as the others did. And that was the point, but I didn't make it well, and now the record stands corrected. So we'll move to the garden today. Uh, we're going to talk about Jesus's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's important to know that it's a very real place that still exists and that probably it really wasn't as much of a garden as it was a grove of olive trees on the side of a hill. They went to a mountain and these gnarly olive trees were there. And it may be that a wealthy person had carved out a garden in the midst of those, but Gethsemane means olive press. And so they really went to the Mount of Olives and on that mountain was also a garden. And the picture we have in our minds of that place is the one where Jesus is kneeling. Uh, he looks kind of serene. Um, the beam of light is shining. And it's a beautiful painting, but it really doesn't do justice to the anguish that he was feeling that night. And we're going to talk about that in a little while. Now, if you were to take a trip to the Holy Land today and, went, and you were to go to the place called the Garden of Gethsemane, that's what it looks like. It's a place that is often visited. Um, I don't think it had all the sidewalks when Jesus went there with the disciples, but it is a place that people love to visit. And if you ever have a chance to go there, it would be a good place to kneel and to pray. This morning, our text is from Matthew's Gospel. We're going to continue on in uh, chapter 26 with verses um, 36 through 46, which is the story of the night in the garden. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. 
Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. You know, the Gospels describe many of the prayers of Jesus. Probably the most famous is the one we learn as children called the Lord's Prayer when he gave us a pattern for praying where we begin by honoring God, by making petitions that benefit God's kingdom, and then by asking for forgiveness and for our daily bread for ourselves. Another famous prayer of Jesus's is in John 17. It's called his priestly prayer, and it takes up a whole chapter of the Bible. And it is the pray where he, prayer where he prayed for you and for me, even back then because he prayed that his disciples would be united, and that he, then he said, not just them, but for everyone who will come to believe because of what they teach, because they share what I have taught them. But the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane reveals Christ's humanity like no other. It evokes so much depth of feeling, so much pain and so much obedience that it's hard for me to imagine myself ever praying quite as fervently, quite as diligently, and quite as obediently. The different gospels use different words to describe how Jesus was feeling, and very often he is the one who is speaking those words. I mean, he said to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. At other times, he's described as anguished, anxious, sad, filled with despair, troubled, deeply distressed. It's not the normal picture that we have of strong and faithful Jesus. He said, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will but as you will. Luke tells us a little bit about the answer Jesus received to that prayer. This is what he said. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he, praised, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. You know, that's a real phenomenon that can occur when people are under terrible stress. It can cause capillaries near the surface of the skin to burst and make a person look like they're sweating blood. And I can't imagine Christ's anticipation of what was to come um, 
I, I can't imagine what it was like, and I can believe that 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 phenomenon would would happen, and he would sweat blood. But it's important for us to remember what the father's answer was. God's answer wasn't to say, "Okay, my one and only son, who I love." I'm not going to make you drink from this cup of suffering. We'll we'll do it an easier way. That's not what God said. What he did was send an angel to give Jesus strength. And sometimes that's the answer to the prayer that we pray. It's not always the answer that we want. But too often we forget to turn to God in that worst moment and pray to God first. He's our... He's our communicator of last resort. We don't turn to him till we've tried everything else. And yet if we remember to turn to him, as Jesus was strengthened by the angel, the spirit will strengthen us for those times. How often do we pray thy will be done? Every time we say the Lord's prayer. Sometimes we sing along with the song on the radio, that pretty song, thy will be done. We say the words But I doubt that any of us has ever prayed those words when we had the power within us to actually save ourselves from terrible suffering. We need to remember what I said to you last week, that that Judas was probably trying to force Jesus' hand, that he saw Jesus do miracles, that Jesus was empowered to do unbelievable miracles in God's name. But he did not use that power on his own behalf. When the Lord was as sorrowful as as a person could be, he turned to the Father. And we have to learn to do the same. There's a guy named Richard Foster. He's a really good writer. He, He was a Quaker. And he wrote a lot about spiritual disciplines and the practices that we undertake to to strengthen us um, in in our faith walks. And he calls this prayer a prayer of relinquishment. And he talks about how we have to grow in our prayer lives. You know, we start out like little children. We manipulate, we beg, and we pout, and we, say, we might say, God, this is my plan. This is what I want to do next week, or this is where I want to move next month, or this is what I'm, I'm going to study. And God, this is my plan, and now won't you bless it, please? Or, or we say, God, you are the giver. We do a little better. We say, God, you are the giver of all good things. And there's a couple really good things that I'd like, God. And we talk to him like he's the fairy godfather instead of God the Father. But as we grow in our prayer life and it comes through practice, we reach a point where we can be more like Jesus and less like children. It's a stage that we have to go through to mature And we slowly learn how to release our wills and embrace God's will. And that is called a prayer of relinquishment. Now, relinquishment doesn't mean resignation. It doesn't mean, okay, God, whatever. It doesn't mean, well, it must be fate. It's not fatalistic. Relinquishment means surrendering what we want so that we can embrace what God wants even when we can't understand it and even when it causes pain. But now let's turn from Jesus and his prayer and let's talk about those sleepyheads, the disciples. 
You know, we, we heard in our um, scripture that the spirit was willing, but the flesh is weak. And um, that's really what we're going to talk about when we talk about the disciples. But I want to take you back first to a time called, to an event that took place called the Transfiguration. It's a time when three disciples, the same three, Peter and John and James, went with Jesus to another mountain and they witnessed an amazing scene. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So here we have these three disciples. They saw Jesus' face shining like the sun. They saw him with Moses and Elijah. They heard God's voice. God's voice saying, this is my son. Listen to him. They heard Jesus tell them that he would be raised from the dead. But it had been only the very beginning. This happened before all the events in Jerusalem. From the time they witnessed that very personal scene that Jesus told them not to talk about, they watched Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem with people saying, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They watched him throw the money changers out of the temple and anger the religious leaders. He washed their feet. He revealed that he would be betrayed. He instituted the Last Supper with the words, take this bread, this is my body, take this cup, this is my blood, do this, eat this meal together in remembrance of me. And then they left and they walked across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives and these three, he asked to go further with him than the rest. And he said to them, watch and pray with me because my soul is anguished. And they fell asleep. Now, the Passover meal included lots of glasses of wine. And I'm not trying to be funny. Maybe they had too much wine. Maybe they actually were just in filled with grief and despair and sorrow, knowing because he told them he was believing them and they didn't really understand about what would happen on the third day. Maybe they were utterly exhausted. But Jesus asked them to watch and pray and they slept. And so he said, couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, this is a verse that we often quote in situations when we're trying to do something that's too hard for us. 
Like if I was to go out and try to run a marathon, let's just be honest, if I was to go out and try to run a 5K or maybe even a mile, the spirit would be willing, but the flesh would be weak because it takes practice for the, pl for the flesh to get less weak. Prayer practice and running practice. If I wanted to be a wonderful uh, guitar player or French horn player, one of you wanted to do that, you, and you, it doesn't just happen without practice. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh doesn't put the time in to get better. So Jesus said something to these disciples because he believed they wanted to do the right thing, just like you do and just like I do. And Eugene Peterson put it this way in the message, and I, I love the way he puts it because it's in language that we can understand a little bit better. When he came back to his disciples, he found them sound asleep. And he said to Peter, can't you stick it out with me a single hour? Stay alert. Be in prayer so you don't wander into temptation without even knowing you're in danger. There's a part of you that is eager, ready for anything in God. But there's another part that's as lazy as an old dog sleeping by the fire. And all I could think of is me looking a little like I have two grand hound dogs, Bert and Ernie sleeping by the fire up in Pennsylvania. We want to do the right thing, but there's so many things in our human frailty that keep us away. In our state of brokenness, instead of staying watchful and praying, we let distractions overcome us. How many nights could I be praying and instead I'm looking at my Facebook page or I'm watching television? So many nights when I could be praying, or even during the day I could be praying, and I'm busy, busy, busy. And sometimes, folks, even what we do at church is busyness that we need to step away from to pray. Sometimes we need approval. Sometimes we surrender to lust. Sometimes we're busy with our angry indignation. And sometimes we're just afraid, and we want to pull the blanket over our head and sleepwalk past the hard decisions that we have to make. We try to ignore God's call from the comfortable to the uncomfortable, like the old dog by the fire who's too tired to go get his master's slippers or his master's newspaper. We turn the other way when we should take a stand or advocate for someone who's hungry or advocate for someone who has no roof over their head or advocate for a child who isn't equipped to learn in school. You know, last week I ended with a, an either-or question. I asked you, are you more like Mary who poured out her perfume on Jesus' feet, who loved him with her whole heart and gave her time, her talent, and her treasure? Or were you like Judas who wanted to manipulate Jesus or who was greedy? And the answer is we're probably all a little like both of them. I know I am. Well, this week I have another question for you. When the going gets really tough, when life is really hard, are you like Jesus? Do you turn to the Father first and pray that prayer of relinquishment that says, Lord, I trust you, and I'm going to give this over to you. Your, your will be done, not mine. Or are we like the disciples who can't keep their eyes open? We're probably a little bit like both. I know I am. Longing to be more like the Lord every day, but often failing 
like an old hound dog sleeping by the fire at his master's feet. 